Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Well, it's been a while, but I wanted to make this political episode this time because uh, the current events in the beginning of December have been so bizarre and weird, and a lot of them just happened yesterday, of my recording, that is on the 9th uh, of December, that uh, I had to wait a bit until things settled down because there was no point in making a kind of a political episode before the important stuff actually happened. And this episode will require a kind of a knowledge of our previous episodes, especially the one about the prison slang, which is important here. And secondly, I did make those constitutional episodes previous to this, uh, too, for a good reason. Well, they were intentional for my Stalin show, but they will be very useful here as well. See, I've mentioned both in the Gulag Inside and in the episode about prison slang that in Russia, this whole system and this prison culture thing has reached uh, crazy levels of governmental agency and that people still live by, well, papanyatium, well, by the prison understandings. This has been recently, in the early December, proven once again by Mr. Putin himself where he stated in an economical forum in Russia, while meeting with other politicians on a major news channel, he was talking about the American-invented fracking technologies, about gathering gas and oil, which are now lowering the price of gas worldwide, and thus hurting Russia economically, and kind of inhibiting their political ambitions as well. So, Putin commented on the fact about how Gazprom is going to get out of this uh, pickle of a situation by stating that, uh, and I quote here, we'll let them invent their technologies, we'll wait a bit, see if they're profitable or not, and then we will uh, top it up and buy them very cheaply, end quote. Now, it might seem funny because, you know, top it up is a weird kind of a sound, but it has a very specific meaning in prison slang. Top it up is a prison term for blatant thievery, for stealing something quietly and quickly. And so, by the way, buying very cheaply, as he couldn't say that in an open sentence that, yeah, Russia's just going to steal their technology and see what we can do with it using our agents, 
yeah, buying very cheaply also is a kind of a metaphor for uh, stealing. So, yeah, Putin, uh, well, you can't really pin it down on him unless you speak prison slang, specifically Soviet and Russian prison slang. But, yeah, Mr. Putin just officially stated that, well, yep, Russia's just gonna steal your technologies because you won't sell them to us, and uh, then we'll see what's happening. We're gonna make a lot of profit out of that. Fun times, isn't it? And this is tied into this whole um, folklore and culture of Russia, because, again, there have been numerous sayings, I think it was Gogol, maybe, or one of the Russian classics, I think it was Gogol, though, who stated that if I would fall asleep for a hundred years, and if I woke up, and then the next day someone would ask me, hey, do you know what's happening in Russia? I would, without doubt, answer, well, stealing and getting drunk. That's literally Russian classics here, because this whole up thing, this called thievery stuff, that's not only a Soviet legacy thing, that happened in the Russian Empire as well, and then it was sort of uh, glorified to a necessity of life in the Soviet era, and I have spoken a lot about the blatant thievery of the Soviet era, and, well, if you listen to my previous economical episodes, then you'll know that in modern-day Russia, well, a lot of people call it kleptocracy, which kind of makes sense, but... People sometimes don't understand how ingrained into that whole system of government and this whole post-Soviet mentality all this is. There, I didn't have a neat example just to explain how the skullduggery and illicit activities, how ingenious they sometimes tend to be, how crazy, how much work will someone put in just to nab something for free and just to steal it. And here we get to one of the funniest stories, well quite likely the funniest story of this year, I, it clearly deserves the nomination. See, um, in Leningradskaya Oblast, which is around St. Petersburg, a lot of people still call it Leningradskaya, there, and again, I think it was like 5th or 6th of December, police arrested a man for uh, trying to smuggle people from Southeast Asia, illegal immigrants, inside the European Union. See, uh, St. Petersburg is not so far from Finland, so, obviously, when someone tries to get inside of EU illegally from those other non-EU countries from Southeast Asia, like Vietnam or Laos or something like that, they go through Russia because, well, obviously, it's easier that way. And uh, this Russian man, he got arrested together with all the four people trying to cross the border illegally, but that's not the point here. The point is that he had taken 10,000 euros as a kind of a first payment from four people from Southeast Asia to get them from Russia into Finland. But he had taken it seriously because, you see, he had no actual means of getting them across the border whatsoever. He had no idea how to do that and had no connections with the border guards. However, 10,000 euros, well, they are 10,000 euros. So this brave person, together with some of his buddies, because apparently he couldn't do that uh, alone, well, we don't know about his buddies yet, but very unlikely that he did all this alone. So this guy just went into the forest somewhere uh, north of St. Petersburg and uh, basically created a dug into the earth uh, fake border posts. Yes, fake concrete slabs and fake signs stating that well, here you go. Russia border, Russia Finland. He created a whole tiny little sector of a fake border area over which he then took the four. He just took them over to this uh, so-called border and they all five got arrested soon after. But uh, even though all the newspapers don't think even they sort of praise this man's ingenuity because, well, you know, it's a 
a lot of work to go <laughs> in the middle of the forest and to create a fake border there. And also to remember where you've put in all these things, because obviously there were no certain paths towards it, because those would be kind of, you know, guarded by border guards. Now, this man just went into the forest, created a fake border, took four uh, Southeast Asian illegal immigrants willing to go into the EU across this imaginary border, and then tried to run away with the cash. And these guys were super happy. Well, apparently they weren't very happy because they got arrested soon afterwards as they were approaching the real uh, Russian-Finnish border because they were just told to go northwards. And then, well, the police got them. They told the whole story to the Russian police and the man got arrested soon after because he didn't manage to escape. But it's still a hilarious story because it shows you the whole top to up idea. It's just, you can't just steal someone's cash, you have to be a bit careful about it, create this panache of, 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 you know, reliability and everything, and then, then you can nab things easily and pretend like nothing ever happened. And this kind of characterizes how modern Russian government is acting on, on each level. Furthermore, uh, they also have a nice little proud tradition of denying everything, even when they've been caught red-handed. That comes from Putin's KGB era, because that was one of the rules of the KGB, that no matter what, never confess to anything. Because, as the Russian saying goes, a clear-hearted confession is the prime step to a long prison sentence. Never confessing to anything and denying everything bluntly is one of the national sports of Russia. And, uh, well, to talk about national sports of Russia, yeah, they're... They're not gonna have any for the next four years, and we're gonna move on to a bit more serious news here. I want to talk about the whole new VADA decision, this World Anti-Doping Agency, and how they recently banned Russia from using its flag or participating or organizing international tournaments for four years. And there's a lot of ruckus about it, but let's get to the beginning, because again, again, as expected, Russia just, well, basically deny everything. So, what happened originally was that, if you remember in the previous uh, Winter Olympics, well, there was no Russia team, there were Olympic athletes from Russia. Even that's out of the question at this point, by the way. But what happened was that in 2018, a massive, massive doping scandal happened in Russia. A bunch of Russian Olympic medals from the Sochi Olympics were cancelled. And, well, that means that Latvia, by the way, got two of their uh, first gold medals in Winter Olympics because of that. Even though, well, everyone in Latvia kind of looked especially at a skeleton there, but that's not the point. The point is that there had been a massive scandal about the state-sponsored administration of illegal pharmaceuticals or doping uh, for the Russian Olympic athletes. This caused Russia to be basically put in a neutral status in the Pyeongchang Olympics uh, last winter ones. They had to basically close down an anti-doping laboratory in Moscow. All of Russia's anti-doping agency was just closed down and completely rebuilt from scratch. This whole rebuilding process and everything, it relied on a few facts. Number one was that they had to rebuild all the doping agency, which they did. Uh, by the way, I have to state that Rusada, the Russian anti-doping agency, it basically is super clean on all of this and it has actually been praised for its excellent work, and the newly rebuilt one, especially with its director on top, is doing a really great job. And the director of this, uh, this agency, Mr. Ganus, has also given interviews about all these proceedings. So, I'll get back to that later, but Rusada, at this point, their anti-doping agency, is, like, has nothing to do with any of this. 
But basically one of the things that would have to reinstitute everything in proper order was the fact that uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency demanded that Russia turn um, over their databases about various tests performed on the Russian athletes, you know, to find out who's been clean, who hasn't been clean, so that everyone can individually be either banned or justified or whatever. And they demanded that this be done until... Uh, they demanded it in 2018, and it had to be done until the 31st of December 2018. That did not happen. They only gave this data to the World Anti-Doping Agency on January 2019, this year. And furthermore, basically, the Anti-Doping Agency does not hold the data on its own. It has to be more neutral, therefore... This data is held inside various laboratories, and it's anonymized. And secondly, as a criminal case had been instituted in Russia for all of this massive, massive scandal over doping and everything, this whole thing had been basically taken into custody by a subsection of the FSB, and all these servers, and all this data, and all these physical samples and everything, they were kind of under the control of so-called investigation committee, which were high-ranking FSB officials during the whole process, and Russian anti-doping agency did not even have access to this data. Which means that only super, super authorized people from the government could have access to this database, uh, or someone with special permits. None of the sports functionaries themselves probably could have acquired this, because, well, you have to have some either high-ranking parliament or police or military kind of clearance to gain access to this data. So, when they brought this data to WADA, what happened was that WADA found out fairly easily that, well, this, this data from the database, this whole anonymous list, semi-anonymous to be exact, had been tampered with. And not in an easy way. It had been like, as far as we know now, 145 athletes had had their results deleted and kind of modified from there. Everyone was blaming Rusada for this, but then Rusada came out and told everyone with kind of admittance and support from Vada that, hey guys, we never did anything from this. So it's not about the doping itself, it's about the fact that even after all the previous scandals and even after all this work put in by the Russian sports people and everyone, they basically are still trying to cheat, and this time it's not about cheating on an individual level or even kind of a team level, it's on a state-funded level where they blatantly and, well, totally unprofessionally basically forge and meddle around with databases and, well, try to make sure that nobody notices. Well, before I will tell you the results of all this, I have to mention that this was fully expected because, well, one of the athletes, I think he was doing pole jumping or something. Uh, yeah, one of these athletes had missed three uh, doping tests and uh, for one of them, he had provided a kind of a sign out from a hospital that he had been, you know, medically recovering there. But then it was a simple internet check away that, found that they found out that this has given kind of excuse, his paper was forged because there was no such hospital and no such doctor who had given this kind of excuse paper here. This whole kleptocracy, this whole ex-KGB government, well, not like they know anything about how the internet works or modern technologies. I mean, Mr. Putin himself does not even have a smartphone. He does not read the internet himself. He usually gets his news from various 
like in Stalin's era, from various kind of uh, special sources who give him various briefs with information, and then he just reads through them. Dmitry Medvedev, the prime minister of Russia, now he's a bit more tech-savvy, but this is a combination. This cover-up at the state level comes from three factors. Number one is this massive willingness to appear super important and to defend Russia's honor and prestige on a world stage together with this prison culture mentality that says never apologize for anything, never admit that you're guilty, mixed in together with utter incompetence in IT, because, you know, the competent IT people, they usually don't work for the Russian government because it doesn't pay very well, they are mostly freelancers. And finally, it also kind of ties up together with the people who had to do these kind of dirty things and cover stuff up. Yeah, they probably just didn't care. This utter, eh, itaksaijot, or eh, whatevs, it, it'll do. This attitude towards everything, well, it causes Roscosmos rockets not to launch, it causes the economy to stagnate, and it also sadly causes a lot of um, brutal humanitarian errors to happen in Russia. So in this case, uh, through all this meddling, well, everything basically happened the way it happened, and now... Well, now there are the consequences, and I'll use the Moscow Times for this. Basically, here is what this Vada's latest ruling, which just happened the 9th of December, means for Russian athletes. And I also will, will take uh, some quotes from Russian officials and what they are saying about all of this, which is a clear-cut case. Hmm. Russia will ban from the Olympics and other major world championships and from hosting major sporting events. Russia will miss Summer Olympics 2020 in Tokyo. EIAF, which is like athletics, like athletics world championships in 2012. Winter Olympics 2022 in Beijing. FIFA World Cup uh, 2022 in Qatar. Women's World Cup in 2023. University in 2021. And 2023, which is hosted in Russia. Russian athletes who prove to VADA that they are clean will still be able to compete at major international sporting events without their flag or anthem, something they did at the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. VADA said that 145 Russian athletes whose data was manipulated will be banned from competing under any flag. Russian officials will be barred from attending sporting events and the country will not be allowed to host them. The ban does not apply to the four matches Russia is hosting next summer during the European Football Championship in St. Petersburg as the tournament is not considered, quote, major event. The Russian anti-doping agency Rusada has 21 days to challenge Vada's ruling. If Rusada appeals Vada's punishment, the case will be referred to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And Alexander Ivlev, the chairman of Rusada's supervisory board, said its committee will meet before December 19th to decide whether to challenge the ruling or not. Now, and before I get into the Russian reactions, I looked into what the Western media was posting about all of this, and, uh, well, the New York Times blatantly states that this is way too lax. It's not actually banning Russia, it's not even punishing, it's just that, what? They're basically gonna lack, uh, uh, and I quote here, a dirty rag and a melody, and that's not nearly harsh enough. Well, people from New York Times might not really understand that when your government is uh, on, in the legacy of the Soviet era, where sport was politicized beyond everything, and it was used to show the greatness of the whole socialist system, and the greatness of your nation and your country, well, this whole anthem and flag thing means a lot more in these parts here, where people are, well, a lot of them are calling it a basically a destruction of all Russian sports, because it hits Russian prestige, and Russian prestige is what keeps Putin's ratings high. So, well, people are stating that it's a very 
harsh blow, but just to show the difference in perspectives here, because Western media, like I think a Guardian as well, yeah, they write that this is basically a non-punishment and that Vada should have gone way, way further with this. But, you know, meanwhile in Russia it's a huge tragedy as it is. Again, changes in perspective, people. But uh, local Russian reactions, some most prominent ones. <clears throat> Maria Lastiskene, three-time world champion in high jumping. By the way, she will be allowed to participate without a flag, as she did previously, because she hasn't had, uh, at any one point, been involved in any of doping affairs whatsoever, and she's considered to be completely clean. Quote, Totally not surprised about this outcome. Today is a very shameful day and I never believe the promises that everything will be okay. I will continue fighting for my own right to compete even under a neutral flag. I am not planning to change my nationality. I am annoyed that athletes are alone in their fight and the heads of sport in our country are only willing to defend us on paper. End quote. Then there is Alexander Tikhonov, four-time Olympic biathlon champion. Quote, we got what we deserved. We have so many former athletes in the state Duma. Couldn't they sort out this mess? I am with Vada on this one. End quote. Evgeny Kafelnikov, Olympic tennis champion, quote, There was systemized doping in Russia, I have no doubt about it. Someone should be punished for it. Russian sports could have restored its reputation if the people who started it all just went out and said, Yes, I screwed up, please forgive me. But no one wants to take responsibility for this. In the end, everything is shifted on the poor athletes, end quote. And now we come to a bit more different sphere. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, quote, <clears throat> The fact that all these decisions are repeated and often in relation to athletes who have already been punished in one way or another suggests that this is a continuation of the anti-Russian hysteria that has already become a chronic condition. End quote. Yuri Ganus, the head of Rusada, said, quote, Russia had no chance of winning an appeal against the Vara decision, calling the four-year ban a tragedy. Some athletes are contemplating leaving Russia, Ganus added, describing the sentiments among athletes as awful. Then there's Igor Lebedev, deputy speaker of the state Duma, quote, He said the move was a serious blow to Russian sport that required a tough response from Russia's authorities. Uh, mind you, Mr. Lebedev does not mean a tough response in the sense that we're going to sort this out and deal with this and deal with all this massive systemic corruption. No, 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 he means to do some um, tough responses, basically doing some sanctions or whatever, and just, you know, banning some, some people out, out from Russia. Then there is Vyacheslav Fetisov, the State Duma's special representative for international inter interparliamentary and sports development organizations. Quote, I'm very upset about this, personally upset. This is no longer a negotiation process, the decision has been made. The only option for us is to go to the arbitration court and look for options. I don't know which, since the VADA Executive Committee's decision was unanimous. And then Vasily Titov, the head of the Russian Olympic Summer Sports Federations, quote, VADA is trying to drive a wedge between the Russian athletes and the state. This is not about sports, it's purely politics. This is how people uh, present it, well, in these parts. But that's not the most interesting part. See, the Summer Olympics happen in, what, six, six months or so? And right now, Russia's official strategy, as of, you know, providing a proper response to all of this, isn't to, to you know, panic or anything. Now, they will, like I said, never admit that you're guilty and never apologize. So what they're going to do is they're going to go through all the possible instances of every court ever and appeal even though everyone, including the previous leader of Vara, has stated that it's a waste of money and guys, you've been caught red-handed, look, this has been proven. However, their tactic now seems to be to appeal everywhere and do everything they can. They won't win the case, no, but they want to delay it to the point where, uh, due to judicial manipulations, Uh, they could kind of make sure that this decision only comes into effect after 
the uh, Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which means that if they perform some jurisprudential delays for long enough, if they manage to squeeze out the process for long enough, uh, if they kind of try to cheat and, you know, s slip through the cracks here, then they could actually go to these Tokyo Olympics and then have their 40-year ban, which would still look better and would be perceived as a somewhat political victory in Russia, which is, well, a sneaky, thuggish way of dealing with this, because, well, what? Accepting responsibility? Oh, no, no, comrades. That only leads to, well, prolonged prison sentences. But again, these are sanctions against Russia for what Russia did. But here comes the next question. Well, and, and many sanctions are also incoming, especially for Crimea, and Russia's been getting harsher and harsher sanctions all the time. But here comes the question. What if there is no more just Russia? Will the sanctions continue in this way? And this is a serious question. This is the third topic which I want to talk about. Because I will actually leave the whole Normandy talks in Paris out of this episode almost completely because they were mostly meaningless. Zelensky lost his ground and everything they could kind of agree with was the fact that, you know, some exchange of war prisoners from Donbass to Ukraine, everything just messed together. But basically it was a non-event uh, and nothing really happened, was decided there. It was just way boring and as usually expected. But much more meeting between Putin uh, happened this week. And I'm, of course, going to talk about Belarus and one sociological survey and one very interesting uh, research white paper that has come out by the request of Mr. Dmitry Medvedev, no less, from the Russian Academy of Sciences. Because what if we can deal with this again, через жопу, or uh, through the ass, through the backwards way of dealing things, with this whole sanction stuff now. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for a new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash theeasternborder to find out how you too can support our show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't hesitate to send us a message with your comments and questions. That's it for now. Thank you for listening and see you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I want to start this part by uh, stating a kind of a weird thing. I've been posting on Twitter and everything that, and I've, on a couple of my episodes, I've stated that Russia has two paths of development. And Russia, as we know, well, ceased to exist at the latest 2024, but some researchers are giving it even less data. And people often kind of tell that I'm some sort of a soothsayer and everything, and that, well, what's up with these doomsaying predictions? But, uh, hey, I've been previously very correct on this show about various political happenings, and, well, this time I have some data to corroborate my investigations and everything. See, Dmitry Medvedev had ordered the Russian Academy of Sciences to do an investigation on if Russia should split up, how it would do so. And what would be the districts and everything, and obviously there's a saying that, well, yeah, it probably would be Moscow with its surroundings, Petersburg, then Far East, then of course uh, Caucasus would split off. There's a huge map on this, but what's important here is the principle itself and the fact that, yes, the study has come out, and Russian Academy of Sciences, which is funded by uh, Kremlin, that is, and this was a direct request from Mr. Dmitry Medvedev, states that the collapse of Russia is actually pretty likely if the current economical trends continue and the well-being of Russians does not improve, then uh, due to the lack of any industry that isn't purely colonial, i.e., while selling off raw resources, the collapse of Russia is, well, actually not as far away as one would presume. Like I said, the most optimistical people that I listen to give it about um, five to ten years. Now, the most pessimistical ones state that there could be revolutions ongoing in Russia itself, even starting next year, maybe 2021, like year or two, when the kind of ruckus starts, and then, then some time until that. Uh, a lot of people are thinking that Putin won't even be the president until the end of his term. Now, obviously, Putin is trying to rectify all this situation in various means, but, yeah, even if Russian Academy of Sciences are now stating this, then, well, things are serious. And I want to give you another thing, because the Russian government isn't the only people around who are doing this. There is a nice, interesting article from September 11, 2019, by the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies, also known by its acronym the BESA Center. Now, these guys are an independent, non-partisan think tank conducting policy-relevant search on Middle Eastern and global strategic affairs, particularly as they relate to national security and foreign policy of Israel and regional peace and stability. So this is an Israeli research center, and they take their foreign affairs very seriously. Specifically, uh, they include also ties with Russia, because of Israel's dealings with Russia when it concerns Syria are of grave importance to the Israeli state. So, this is an important thing, and I'm going to read a kind of a summary here, because uh, they have a huge article written about this, but here is what this Begin Sadat Center says for strategic studies. They had, they had known about this research, but, well, once all these things come out, and once even every national positionary ever is starting to say that, well, Russia is probably pretty much doomed, and uh, even Dmitry Medvedev in his latest press conference stated that, yeah, we have to be very wary about mass riots and weird things happening in Russia in kind of the near future. So what this, what this article says is that, quote, 
Russia is historically prone to internal collapse, as is shown by numerous examples from both the Imperial and Soviet periods. The collapse usually takes place as Russia rests on the laurels of recent military victories, while internal economic and social troubles grow. History teaches that the best way to deal with Russia is to keep intervention at to a minimum and wait for its internal troubles to bring about its collapse. When one power is defeated by another, the primary reason for its defeat is often internal weakness, military, social or economic. Such weaknesses undermine state efforts to produce a fitting response to an enemy onslaught. In the Russian case, these fundamental problems are compounded by another major flaw, geography. Russia's harsh climate affects the central government's ability to project its power efficiently. Long land borders with potential enemies add to the problem. Internal economic and technological weaknesses are a major hindrance to the state's ability to succeed over the long term. The implication of these fundamental flaws is that Russia is prone to internal collapse. The question is one of timing, whether or not the Russian Federation will collapse in the coming decade. The Soviet example gives us a good overview of the Russian predicament. When World War II ended, the United States saw the prospect looming of a direct multipolar confrontation with the Soviets. George Kennan, a young United States diplomat in Moscow, wrote a report commonly referred to as the Long Telegram, in which he described the strategy to contain and defeat the Soviet Union. Many works have been produced based on his ideas, with most concentrating on his idea of containment. Often disregarded, though, is his far more important idea that the ultimate American victory was essentially assured as early as the 1950s because the Soviet system, burdened by its economic form and flawed state management, would eventually fail. Kennan, who was a student of Soviet systematic inefficiencies, probably also knew that failure from within was a problem that had haunted Russian leaders throughout the country's history. Consider the time of troubles in the late 16th to early 17th centuries. During that period, internal disturbances led to the Polish occupation of the Russian heartland, including Moscow. We can also look to the end of the Romanov era in 1917, another good example of Russian state collapse. The breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991 is, of course, the most recent example. In every case, a complete breakdown of social order followed the collapse. Note that these Russian defeats were not military. Their major cause was internal economic weakness coupled with military inefficiency that had grown over decades. To put it another way, when Russia was economically strong, and thus militarily strong, it was able to defeat the two largest land operations in world history, in 1812 against Napoleon and in 1941 against Hitler. When weak and left to its own devices, Russia repeatedly collapsed in on itself and transformed into a new system. All these precedents have one thing in common. Russia's economic underdevelopment caused internal instability and a subsequent change of system. But they also explain why discussions inside Russia about enemies within have always been common, during the time of the Romanovs, during the Soviet era, and today. Particularly, since the 2014 crisis over the annexation of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine, Western analysts and politicians have argued about the best way to deal with Russia. Military solutions are not put forward, as too many historical examples show that the direct military clash with Russia is suicidal. The optimal solution might be a new containment strategy that combines military and economic moves with an understanding that the current Russian government will eventually collapse because of the system's fundamental deficiencies. A new containment policy against Russia would bring results, not necessarily because of America's economic and military strength, but because of Russia's inability to reverse internal economic downturns, build a powerful military, despite expenditures in the tens of billions, the Russian military is still no match for the rising Chinese and already established American armies impose effective control over large swaths of hostile Eurasian land, become a center of gravity for neighboring states, primarily former Soviet countries, and so on. Surprisingly, Russian collapse often takes place following decades of relative peace on the country's borders, when there were no serious military confrontations on par with Napoleon's or Hitler's invasions. 
rather than use these relatively peaceful periods to develop the economy and build technologies to stay abreast of the Western democracies, Russia lagged behind while resting on the laurels of its military victories. Though it is impossible to know definitively when Russian internal troubles will transform into a crisis collapse mode, many signs indicate that if no change is made to the foreign policy, no broad economic reforms are made and internal corruption is not fought, protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg will only grow. Around 50,000 people protested in August weekend in Moscow. This year, that is. Also, there are hints in the Russian media that the domestic elites are starting to talk about possible solutions to the country's foreign and internal crises. If the elites are openly discussing different scenarios, we can infer that there has been a shift in perception among the Russian public, an indicator that the country is facing serious problems. The old Russian habit is revealing itself once again. The regime is savoring its victories against Georgia and in Syria, its annexation of Crimea and the war in Ukraine, while disregarding the country's real challenge, its technological, military and economic underdevelopment. A clever Western politician would sit back and wait until the situation in Russia brews into crisis mode. And uh, this is their concept thing, and I have to agree with it. I have to fully agree with this message because no one in Russia cares. Those who care are marginalized, and even kind of the leading people, like uh, the previous chairman of the very pro-Putin youth group, Nashi, even that guy basically took his bags and moved off and fled to Germany, where he was granted ex uh, citizenship on a very short time, very quickly. And the thing is that, obviously, you know, it's quite hard to get German citizenship that easily, that quickly, if you don't sell off some nice little state secrets. And, well, we know that all of the Kremlin elites, a lot of them have either... Uh, permanent residency or even citizenship of various foreign countries, be it Italy or Cyprus or UK, and a lot of them even have similar stuff arranged for them in the United States, so everyone's ready to jump ship. But still, there's much to be stolen and much to yet be uh, basically dealt with, because there are still th signs that the old KGB guard, which is getting incompetent and older and... Uh, not as sharp as before, they're still trying to solve the situation, get outside from these sanctions and uh, kind of build some future, but the future seems to be very interesting. And there are two options here. One of these options, how Putin could stay in power indefinitely if Russia does not collapse, which is, which is uh, more and more likely with each passing day and each passing news that I read. Well, number one was the fact that they want to change the constitution, maybe in some nice little way, so that Putin could remain in power indefinitely. That could cause mass protests, with the growing kind of economical situation if that does not improve, but that's one way how Putin could stay in power, and the Russian official statistics agency reported that 68% of the people of Russia, according to their kind of survey, would approve of a change in the constitution. Now, that might sound like terribly pro-Putin, and the government would like it, except that there were also other questions on this survey, and when people asked what they would want changed in their constitution, well... Here are some of the answers. <clears throat> so that people would be treated normally. So that the pensions would get bigger. So that everyone would have a job. And 70% uh, of those surveyed hadn't even read the Constitution and didn't even understand what the Constitution is and what's it all about. I bet they didn't even read the previous Soviet Constitution either. And a lot of the people who voted negatively just stated that all they want is for this Constitution to work properly. So when people are misinformed, when people are ignorant, and when they don't know how constitutions work, unlike you, dear listeners, because you have listened to my previous two constitutional episodes, well, then such things happen. But, yeah, if a change of constitution means this to them, then, well, obviously, uh, kind of a hard thing to use, because, well, again, if economical situation does not improve, and it's going downhill, and the prestige of country is now tarnished, 
yeah, kind of hard to stay in power to continue stealing everything that happened. The other option is uh, closer ties to Belarus, because they still kind of want to form this union state, which they signed a deal about in 1993, that they eventually would become a single country. I've spoken about this in previous episodes, and uh, in the 8th of uh, December, a meeting happened between Lukashenko and Putin. And, uh, yeah, that didn't go smoothly at all. That also was um, kind of a bit of a failure. Reading from Euronews here. <clears throat> Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Belarusian counterpart Alexander Lukashenko met in Sochi on Saturday to discuss economic agreements between the two nations. Their meeting prompted mass protests in Minsk, where over 1,000 people came together to voice their anger against further approachment between the neighbors. During the demonstrations, protesters clashed with security forces in charge no to integration. Many fear that if Belarus gets closer to Russia, post Soviet independence will erode. See, that's the thing. It might not seem like a lot of people, but you tend to forget that Lukashenko was called the last dictator of Europe a few years ago. I think 2004 is something by Mr. President George W. Bush. It was just bizarre because in Belarus, the opposition is being cracked down on and protests have been like violently oppressed and squashed way, way earlier than it started in Russia. So right now, the fact that this protest happened and the fact that, according to RIA Novosti, or RIA News Agency, the only orders that the Belarusian government actually stated to the protesters was, well, they ordered their uh, policemen to act cautiously and according to law and do not do any excessive uh, measures. Which is bizarre, because previously no such orders happened and they truly were all prison, means that Lukashenko has, at this point, become not a kind of an enemy of his people. Lukashenko currently has as he wants to remain in power, and no one wants to join Russia, well, Lukashenko for now has to ally himself with uh, his opposition, because the Belarusian people and Lukashenko at this point want basically the same thing. That is why he's not cracking down on those protests. He totally would, though. He totally, absolutely would. But right now, it is very weird. Lukashenko previous to this meeting, stated that, quote, No one will ever cite documents that could cause us harm, said Lukashenko. We have never planned to join another state, including Russia, which is our fraternal nation. This is very weird, because Russia really wants to kind of annex it, too, diplomatically, and now they're pushing on Lukashenko, which truly has been in power for 25 years and is not a, not a clean-handed, nice person himself. And this union would allow Putin to keep power, because again, in December 5th, in this uh, very same interview that Mr. Dmitry Medvedev said, the Prime Minister of Russia stated that um, he hailed the, quote, very high level of integration between the two countries, quote, We have a union state. This is a big asset. Indeed, we often have disputes and we all utter some insults, especially in emotional outbursts. This does happen, but objectively, the level of integration between our countries is very high. He also told journalists in Moscow that, quote, there is no need for the Belarusians to give up their sovereignty if they don't want to, but he pointed out that, quote, any integration is a partial reduction of sovereignty. So, Russia either needs to change the constitution or just grab Belarus for another nice little victory, because what else they're going to do? They're, they're grasping at straws at anything uh, from the 20th century realpolitik era, totally ignoring the modern, kind of post-modern world, post-industrial world, with all of its good things and bad things, they still live in the past and they want to kind of postpone the solution of the Russian state, because, well, like I said, either they're going to pull this off somehow and turn it into the world's largest North Korea, or they're going to solve, and looks like the solution is on the menu.
Because, again, and this comes from the Moscow Times, this uh, was the report after this. <clears throat> Talks between the Russian and Belarusian presidents in Sochi Saturday over plans for closer integration of the two countries appear to end in a stalemate. Vladimir Putin and his Belarusian counterpart, Alexander Lukashenko, were locked in negotiations for more than five hours at the Black Sea Resort Saturday, the Kremlin confirmed, although the pair managed to only strike an agreement to meet for further talks in two weeks in St. Petersburg. Basically, they talked for five hours. Russian media is now portraying this as a major victory and that many agreements have happened. Even though if you watch their uh, photos, you see that everyone was looking at each other with stern faces, not much was uttered, everyone looked at each other with very very disappointed views, and Lukashenko left with an English goodbye that is no goodbye at all. And to explain the level of how crashing down everything is and how Lukashenko is fighting back this inter close integration with Russia, because, well, that is literally no possible way how Lukashenko would end up on such a deal. Yeah, Putin Lukashenko departed Sochi without any deals whatsoever, didn't sign any documents, and they even left without delivering a customary joint press conference, to which everything was set up. Everything was set up, and nothing happened. This is kind of crazy. Think about it. Russia is in a quite the tight spot at this point. And it's going to get interesting, because I am somewhat, somewhat pessimistic in my things. I, I give Russia until the end of 2024. Until Putin is in power, I think he'll manage to somehow, через жопу, through the ass, backwards ass happily, put the country and hold it together, but after that, well, we might have chaotic times. That is, if Mr. Putin learns something, well, such as, you know, listening from my show, you guys in, in St. Petersburg should relay this to him, if he learns something from this show and uh, learns from his past mistakes, but that would admit being wrong at some point, and that is against the code of honor of the KGB. Next episode, we're going to be back to the Soviet era, but these these shows are harder and harder to make because the history, and quoting, I don't know, I think Dan Carlin, but Dan Carlin quoted someone else, history does not repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.